Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. About 20 years ago or so, a group of scholars came together and um, put together what has been called the Jesus Seminar. And they were very, very popular, very, a lot heard about them back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, and what the whole idea behind this was, was a search for the historical Jesus. And um, the way that they did this was they basically got together um, twice a year, and they would go through each of the Gospels, you know, a little bit at a time, and as they covered one passage or, or one particular thing, um, then they would all kind of discuss it and, you know, discuss the merits of it, and then they would bring it to a vote as to um, whether... Um, one of these things, if it was a saying, for instance, if it was something that Jesus said, um, did he really say that or was it just something made up afterwards? Or did he really do that or was it something made up afterwards? And the way that they decided this was after they would come together and, and go over maybe a portion of one of the Gospels um, and discuss it, then they would all vote. And the way that they voted was each of the um, participants got um, like a bag of marbles, beads, marbles. And there were different colors, four different colors, red, pink, gray, and black. And the way that they did it was they would go through a passage, and then after they had discussed it and, and whatnot, then they would all vote, and they would put their marbles into this jar. And the idea behind it was if you thought that this was really an authentic saying of Jesus Christ, that he really did say these words or really did do this thing, then you voted with a red marble. You put your red marble in the jar. If, uh, if you used a pink marble, that meant um, that it, was, it may not be exactly what he said, but he probably said something like it. So it, it has a ring of authenticity, so you voted with the pink marble. Um, a gray marble meant that you didn't believe he really said that or really did that, but it did have some reflection of his ideas or some... some merit to the thought about it so you voted with the gray marble and then if you used the black marble you were saying this is a complete fabrication jesus never said this jesus never did this it was made up by his followers afterwards and added to the whole deal um and the upshot of all of this after they had gone through all the gospels and gone through all this here's what they came up with basically the virgin birth the resurrection any claim Jesus ever made to divinity was thrown out. That was not really what Jesus did or said. Um, and basically, they rejected pretty much the whole gospel of John. And about less than 20% of the rest of the gospels. So after voting with all their marbles, that's what they came up with, which leads me to the belief that they all lost their marbles. <laughs> because it seems to me, if at the end of the day, all you can come up with is less than 20%, why even bother voting? I mean, what's the point in all of it? Because if you come with the preconception that he wasn't God, that he didn't do any miracles, that he didn't say anything that would even indicate that, you know, then that's the results you're going to come up with, and why do you even bother with the whole deal? This whole series we are doing is on Mythbusters, and this morning we're looking at this one, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Because a lot of people say things like he was a great moral teacher, but I don't know if I can believe he was truly God. Um, I'll give him this, you know, maybe a prophet, maybe something else, but, but not really God. And, and by the way, just so you know, this debate has raged for 2,000 years. This bait, debate started when Jesus was still alive on this earth. In Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, because everybody had an opinion on who he was. In verse 15, 13 and 14, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
There was all kinds of debate, even in Jesus' day, even when he was right there. All kinds of opinions about who he was and what he was doing. And, and it really, when you look at it, there is, there is, science, there is um, historical record. Okay? There is very little historical doubt that this man named Jesus lived at the time that he did. We have, besides the Bible, um, besides the Gospels, we have Jewish, Greek, and Roman uh, historians who record, in some measure or form, um, the existence of Jesus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Tacitus, Roman and Greek historians. So there is very little um, debate historically of the existence of Jesus. The real question is, who was he? Who was he? Because what you believe about Jesus is important. Because it's central to his message was not just a philosophical viewpoint, nor was it just a series of ethical teachings or, or maybe a prescribed set of practices and behaviors. Although he gave all of those things, at the heart of his message was who he was. It is not just an embrace of his teachings, but he demanded an embrace of him as a person. In fact, he is the only one in history that equated and tied faith to his own personhood. Buddha never did that. Confucius never did that. Muhammad didn't do it. Moses and Abraham didn't do it. Only Jesus tied faith and belief to who he was. He is the only one that did that. So it really does matter who was he. What you believe about him is going to determine everything else about your belief system. So who was the real Jesus? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to look at it from three different perspectives. The first is, who did his followers believe he was? Those who who followed him, those who who came on along after him, what did they believe about Jesus? Because that's really important because a lot of them gave their lives for this whole thing. So what was it that they believed about him? And then secondly, what is it that he said about himself? What Jesus acted, what did he actually say about himself? And then the third and maybe the most important point is, so what? So what? What does that mean to me? What, what, what do I do with this information? What do I do when I come to a decision about all of this? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, because whatever else you may say, it is very, very clear when you read through the New Testament that Jesus' followers believed he was God. Any, reading, any cursory reading through the New Testament, every one of the letters that Paul wrote, every one of the letters written by his followers referred to him as Lord, referred to him as the Son of God, referred to him as God. Every one of Paul's letters, he talks about it. In fact, the most clear that he is, is in his letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 2, if you want to follow along. Beginning in verse 5, Paul wrote these words. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, Paul's pretty unambiguous here. He's pretty straightforward. He's saying, this is it. This is it. Essential to the first century followers of Jesus were that he was not just another rabbi, not just another teacher, that he was God become man. That's what Paul writes. 
He said, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, you read that sentence, and you, you know, we, as we listen to that word, um, being grasped, something to be grasped, you kind of get this picture of, of like a little kid you know, reaching for the cookie jar that's out of his reach, that he really wasn't God. He was reaching for it, but decided not to reach for it. That's almost the impression you get. But that's not the most accurate understanding of that word. It's, it's a really, it's a very important word. And it's actually found nowhere else, nowhere else in the New Testament, in the original language, which was Greek. And in fact, it's a word that was very even, very rarely even used in, in Greek literature of the time. So it's a hard word to, to really fully translate. So for those of you who love Greek, the word is harpagmos. Aren't you impressed? Four years of college just to be able to pronounce that word. And what it means, the best translation, the best idea that we have of what this word means is it has to do with being exploited. In other words, he is saying that being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited, something to be used for his own purposes, for his own gain. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this is the truest, clearest most accurate picture that we have of God is who we see him in Jesus. It is the best picture, the best look that we get at God. That Jesus was God himself shown to us. He is not God light. You know, because a lot of people say, well, I don't like the Old Testament God. He's mean, he's cruel, he's vicious. You know, he does all these things. I like Jesus. He's God light. He's God love. You know, I I, want to go follow. He is God. He is God. In Jesus, God revealed himself like never before. That's what his followers believed. That's what first century Christians claimed. That's what they held on to. That he showed himself through Jesus like never before and never since. Now that's important because a lot of people have this picture of God like he's this all-knowing, all-powerful God. And those are the things that they play up. And he is those things. But if that's all that you think of him, then he is distant. He's unapproachable. He's, he's out there somewhere, but it has nothing to do with me. If your picture of God is harsh and stern and judgmental, then, then you shrink back in fear and you want nothing to do with him. If all you think about God is, is his invisible qualities, um, that he is distant, that he is far off, well, then he's detached and uncaring and has nothing to do with my life. But Paul says that he believes that Jesus is allowing us to see God most clearly. That yes, God is powerful, but he is powerful in his grace. That yes, God is righteous and holy and he makes righteous judgments, but they are the product of his goodness. And he is self-sacrificing and unconditionally loving. That's what Jesus shows us. And that we don't see as clearly anywhere else. We see hints of it throughout the Old Testament. But in Jesus, we see God as clearly as he is. Self-sacrificing, unconditionally loving. Paul goes on and says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what he did. That's our God. This is our God who came to earth, who became one of us, who lived among us, who taught us, and then who gave his life sacrificially for us on this death, this horrible death on a cross. Now just survey this morning. How many here have a piece of jewelry or somewhere hanging at home, somewhere a cross? You have it on a piece of jewelry or somewhere? Do you know that for the first 300 years of the church's existence, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity? 
It was not. Do you know why? Because they knew what the cross was. The cross was an instrument of torturous death. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. Those who were insurrectionists, those who were rebelling against the Roman Empire, that's what the cross was. It was an instrument of death. It was not something that you gloried in. It was a horrible thing. And for the first 300 years, the church did not use the cross to represent who they were as followers of Christ. Now, you think that sounds kind of crazy, but it's because they knew what it represented. They had seen crucifixions. And that's our God. Paul says, that's our God. He comes, and he sacrifices, and he gives. And he does it in his love for us. And because of the fullness of his character shown in Jesus Christ, and the faithfulness to his work as shown in Jesus Christ, Paul goes on and says, Then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul is saying is someday, someday everybody will see this. Someday it's going to be revealed. Someday all are going to recognize who he was. Now that is what Paul believed. That is what was taught in the early church. The first century believers very, very clearly believed that this was Jesus Christ, God become man, crucified, buried, and resurrected. That was the message. They really, really believed that. Now, you got to ask yourself a little bit, so if they believed that, you know, why would they believe such a thing? Because, I mean, these guys gave their lives for it. Paul, Paul was beaten on numerous occasions, thrown into jail, shipwrecked. All of these things happened to him. Eventually, he was actually killed for his faith. Now, somebody, somebody might do that, but only if they really believed in it. Because if they didn't believe in it, why would they do those things? What would it benefit them if they would to do this, if they would you know, perpetuate this myth only for the sake of, of monetary gain? They didn't, they didn't get much money out of the deal. And if they did it to amass power, they were never powerful. They were always at the mercy of others in power, and they were put to death and beaten because of it. They had nothing to gain. So maybe they got it all wrong. Maybe they were just really, really sincere. Maybe they just misunderstood. Maybe they just got a little carried away with this whole thing. You know, maybe they, they believed that they were sincere in it. They thought it was the truth, but, but really that's not what Jesus was teaching. Maybe they just misunderstood what it was that he said. So what you got to do then is say, okay, well then what is it that he said about himself? And that's where you got to go to the Gospels. Because that's the only real account we have of any of his sayings. It's, it's where it is. And so you got to go back to the Gospels. And if you read the Gospels on numerous occasions, Jesus made claims about himself. He did things that led to claims about himself. The clearest, again, in John chapter 8, John's Gospel chapter 8. It's another one of these arguments that Jesus is having with religious leaders. And it's recorded. We kind of come in because we can't go through the whole conversation, but we're going to come into the conversation about midway in John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? 
If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is you do not belong to God. Now, he's saying this to religious leaders, okay? This is his audience. You don't belong to God. The Jewish leaders answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? Jesus said, if I am not possessed by a demon, but if I honor my father and you dishonor me, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you're a demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jew said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is just one of many conversations. But in this, Jesus makes some claims. And as you look at it, you begin to understand. Jesus was making this claim of God's authority and God's equality. He was making a claim. It's very, very, very clear here. This is what he said, verse 42. I came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? He says, what part of this don't you understand? (laughs) I'm making it as clear as I possibly can. What don't you get? I came. From God. Now what he is doing there, he is making a claim. A claim to be the Messiah. And you got to understand a little bit of the, of the history of the situation. Because at this point, the nation of Israel is under the domination, as is all the area, under the domination of Rome. And Roman rule was, was horrific. Roman rule was oppressive. It was a military occup- occupation. Um, there was taxation like you couldn't. You think taxes are bad now. I mean, there was taxation then like you could not believe. And, and everybody was looking for There was a group that was longing for and looking for a Messiah. Someone who would come and liberate them from this oppressive rule. And, and this idea of God's chosen one, God's one sent by God, that's Messiah. The word Messiah literally means anointed by God. And, and the Greek version of it is, is Christ. Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was his title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. That was his claim. That's what he was claiming. That he was chosen by God. That he had come from God to liberate. But his claim was different than all the others. Because you see, Jesus was not the only one to ever make that claim. Nor was he the first. In fact, historians have found there's at least six other, others who made the claim to Messiahship within a century either way of Jesus' life. At least six others. Possibly more, but we know of six others at least. Every one of them was killed. And every one of them, when they were killed, their movement died with them. When the Messiah proved not to be the Messiah, it all ended except for Jesus' followers. Because Jesus' claim was different. His messiahship was different. 
It wasn't just a political situation. It wasn't just a military solution. It wasn't an earthly kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is within you, within you. And he claimed, he claimed to be able to do this because he claimed God as his father. That's what he says in verse 54. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me, though you do not know him. I know him. Now, he was making a bold claim there. And his audience knew what he was talking about. He knew, they knew what he was talking about. In fact, and it wasn't the only time that he made it. He made it on numerous other occasions too. In John 5, he made the same, same claim. And it says that they were, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, this is important to understand. Jesus was Jewish. He was not Hindu. His belief system was not a pantheistic system where everybody has a part of God and God is, God is in everything and everyone and, and everybody just needs to find their own God within themselves and that's what Jesus was really saying. Jesus was a Jew. There was only one God. Only one God. To put yourself in equality with God, to call God Father in the way that Jesus did was blasphemy. It was blasphemy. That's why they wanted to kill him. That was the charge that they brought before him when he was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest in the Jewish court. That he was making this claim. That's what they understood, and that's what he was saying. And he didn't correct it. He didn't change their ideas. In fact, he just added to it. There's another uh, account that's in Mark's gospel where um, there's a man who is paralyzed. And he has four friends who want to get him to see Jesus because they hear of Jesus, this rabbi, who is healing people. And they want to get their friend. And, and the place where Jesus is in this house, it is so crowded, they can't even get to the front door. So they get up on the roof. They dig a hole through the roof. And they lower him down on this stretcher right in front of Jesus. And he comes down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees him there laying on this mat, obviously paralyzed. And he says, your sins are forgiven you. Wait a minute. Nobody asked about sins. He came to be healed. But Jesus' words are, your sins are forgiven. And everyone in there is saying, he's, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the claim that he is making. And his claim was first to forgive sins. They say, how can anybody forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, just so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, he says to the man, get up and walk. And he does. And he does. And the healing was verification of the promise that he made, that the man's sins were forgiven. Now, those aren't the only two occasions. Those aren't the only three occasions. Any cursory reading through any of the Gospels, you find it over and over again. And there are those who say, well, that's not what he meant, and that's not what he really said. Yes, it is. Because the audience that he was speaking to clearly understood what he was saying. That's why they wanted to kill him. And at no point did he ever say, wait a minute, you misunderstood me. That's not what I meant to say. He meant what he said. Now, anybody who makes those kinds of claims is delusional at best, psychotic at worst. And there have been people, you know, people these days who make those kind of claims, they end up in an insane asylum. That's what happens to those kinds of people. Back in the 50s, um, a psychologist, psychiatrist named Milton Rokich, I don't know if you've heard this, wrote a very famous book. It's called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And um, he worked with three guys who had this delusional Messiah complex, I mean, very severe psychosis, um, in, a, in, a, in an insane asylum. Wow, try to say that five times fast. Um, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And, and, and these guys all believed that they were God incarnate. They were the Messiah. Which, you know, led to some really funny things. You know, like, um, there's one account that's written in, about um, where they're, they're in the... Um, 
in the dorm and they're sleeping and, and somebody in the dorm room is snoring. And somebody at the other end of the hall says, Jesus Christ, will you stop that snoring? And the one guy sits up and he goes, I'm not snoring, it's him. And so Milton Rokic, what he decided to do was, he thought, maybe if I can get the three guys into group therapy together, maybe they will learn from each other that, you know, they're not. And, and he brought them together, and amazing conversations. You know, one guy, would say, one guy would say, I am the Messiah. I am sent by God to save the world. And Rokic would say, well, how do you know that? He said, God told me. And the other guy would say, I said no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do with those kinds of people. But Jesus is making those kinds of claims. And that's why they're saying he's a madman. He's demon-possessed. There's something wrong with this guy. Except the things that he is doing are not the acts of a madman. Nor the acts of someone who are demon-possessed. He is saying, he is practical. He is saying good things. It was not an aside. It was central to his message. Who he was. And if you have any doubts about that, you've got to go to the end of chapter 8. Because at the very end of chapter 8, when they're having this whole discussion with him, they're saying, Are you, how can you say, Father Abraham, he's our father. He, he's dead. He's been dead. You're not even 50 years old. How can you say you, you know Abraham? And Jesus, they said, Abraham died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Understand what that phrase, I am, means. That is the phrase, that is the, those are the words that God used when he revealed himself to Moses in front of the burning bush. When Moses was called by God to lead the nation of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt into the land that he had promised them, and, and Moses was called to go stand before Pharaoh, and, and he said, what if they don't believe me? Who should I say sent me? And when they, when he said, when they ask you that, you say, I am that I am. I am has sent me. That was the name that God used to reveal himself to Moses. That was the name. That name was not even spoken in Jewish culture. It was a sacred name. You didn't speak it out loud. You used Adonai. Other substitutionary words. You didn't write it down. You just put the consonants without the vowels. Because it was a sacred name not to be spoken. And Jesus is using this name to refer to himself. And they all know what he is saying. That's why they want to stone him. So you can throw out all of those claims. You can take away all of the miracles. But if you take all of that stuff out of the Gospels, you got less than 20% left and you got nothing. So you can take it all away, but you're not really dealing with the issue. And you can deny the truth of his claim. You can say, well, he, he made the claim, but it wasn't true. But what you cannot do is you cannot deny the fact that he made the claim to divinity. Because it's all throughout the Gospels. And it is all throughout the teachings of the early church. It is clear. That's what he said. That's what he meant. That's what they understood. And that's what they taught. So the bottom line is, that's all well and good. But what does that have to do with me? Why should I even care about this? What difference does it make? It makes a difference because Jesus makes claims on our lives that we cannot ignore. He didn't just make claims about who he was. Who he was led to decisions you had to make about how you were going to relate to him. 
The claims that he made about himself all had with them the sense that you've got to respond to this. You've got to do something about this. His message was not just vague platitudes. God is love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said those things, but that was not the heart of his message. The heart of his message was who he was because he also said things like, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I am the light of the world, he said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you don't get to pick and choose the parts of his words that you want to follow. You either take it all or you throw it all away. But if you listen to what he said about himself and what, re- what the response is on our behalf, you got to make a decision about this. Now, a lot of people say, well, since I can't really know for sure, it's best not to make a choice. I mean, if I can't really know, then, then it's best to just remain neutral. Don't make a commitment. Don't make a decision. Just kind of stay neutral on the whole thing. And for some decisions, that's fine. There are a lot of decisions in life that you can remain neutral. Paper or plastic. Decaf or regular. Chocolate or vanilla, it really doesn't matter. Those are decisions. It really doesn't matter what you choose. One way or the other, it really doesn't matter. In most cases, those kinds of decisions, it doesn't matter. But in some cases, that is not an option. In some cases, there are decisions that you must make. A guy named William James, philosopher, the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, wrote a number of essays. One he wrote was called The Will to Believe. And what he wrote in this essay was that in some cases, you must make a decision. Neutrality is not an option. There are certain situations in which you must make a choice. And he said there are three conditions, three criteria that describe this. And if you're faced with a decision that meets these three criteria, you have to make a decision. The first criteria, he said, is a pretty easy one. There has to be two live options, okay? There, you, you're making a choice between two very real decisions, okay? Two very real things. They are two live options. Let me illustrate this. Um, how many would say there's a very good possibility that an American League team will win the World Series this October? How many would say that? Not very many, okay. How many would say there's a very good possibility that a National League team would win the World Series this October? A few more. How many say, I don't really care one way or the other? You're ruining my whole illustration. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. There are two live options. We know that in the World Series in October, there's going to be an American League team and a National League team, and either one of them could win it. There are two very live options. Now, if I said, how many think the Giants will win the World Series? That is not a live option. (laughs) That is not going to happen. Not in my lifetime, I think. Okay, that is a dead option. But when you are faced with two live options that are very real and very real possibilities, there's a choice to be made. Now, that's just the first criteria. Criterion. The second one is that it is a momentous choice. In other words, that it matters. That the stakes are high. That whatever you choose faced with the decision will have an effect on the outcome of your life. It'll have, there'll, there'll be an outcome to the choice that you make somewhere along the line. It's, going, it's, an, it's an important decision. It's a very important decision. It is momentous. So the first criterion, yeah, it's a choice between two live options. The second criterion, that it is a momentous decision, that it really matters which way you choose. And then the third criterion is 
that a decision is forced. That you must decide. And to not decide is making a decision in itself. Let me illustrate that. If you are on the third floor of a building that is on fire, and you go to the window, and the flames are coming into the room that you are at, and you are at the window, and down below you are a fireman holding a net, you are faced with a choice, and you must choose. You must decide. You have two live options. Stay here and take my chances with the fire. Jump out the window and take my chances with the net. I don't know if they're going to be able to catch me. I don't know if the net will hold, but I got to make a decision. And at some point, the decision is forced. To not decide is to decide. It is a decision in itself. And what Williams James says is when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to faith, neutrality is not an option because you are faced with two very live options. And the choice that you make is momentous. It's going to have an impact. It's going to have an outcome. And you are forced to decide because to not decide is a decision in itself. And that's what Paul said when he said someday, someday, Everybody's going to know. Someday, everybody's going to see. There will be a result to this choice. And someday, everybody will see the results of their choice. It is inevitable. And Jesus claimed, the only right choice is me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So you're faced with the choice. It's the choice that Jesus gave his followers. After he asked them, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then Jesus says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Because that is the choice everybody has to make. To not make that choice is in itself a choice. C.S. Lewis put a lot more succinctly than a half-hour sermon. (laughs) He wrote about it in his book, Mere Christianity, which, by the way, we have available if you want to pick up a copy um, at the resource desk. But this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing we must not say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool... You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not, he writes, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.